Luke chapter 3, verse 1 to 14. Prepare to meet your God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your holy word, the sacred scriptures, we do, as Isaiah says, with fear and trembling. We tremble before your word, Lord. We who are but dust and ashes. O Lord, would you rend the heavens and descend upon your people. Come to us afresh and anew. Pour out your Spirit upon us and do some great work among your people in the midst of your church and in all the earth in these days of chaos and confusion. In Jesus' name, Amen. Sally's husband forgets to tell her that her, her in-laws are coming. And he tells her three hours before the in-laws arrive and she's really upset and she's in a frantic spin and she cleans up the house and washes duvets and sheets, fitted sheets and uh, prepares a meal for the in-laws. And her husband's really sorry, he just completely forgot. And so he buys her a bunch of flowers to say he's sorry and eventually they sit down and talk through the whole thing and they sort out the issue. Now unfortunately it doesn't work that way with the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Messiah. You cannot be unprepared. You can be unprepared for your in-laws coming. You cannot be unprepared for the coming of the Christ. And so you must be, as Amos tells us in chapter 4 verse 12, you must be prepared to meet your God. Now in Luke 3, it refers to his first coming, but we as Christians await the second coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us read of his first coming in Luke 3, verse 1 to 14. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, 
God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. So number one, the time of his coming. That is in verse 1 and 2. I remember uh, probably about in 2010, someone showing me a video, a video of a preacher who predicted the second coming of Jesus. And he said that uh, the Great Tribulation will begin in the year 2013. And then he made some other predictions. And uh, he, the point was that Jesus would come in either 2013 or 2017. And obviously, as you know, that didn't happen. And the Bible tells us that no man can know the exact day of the coming of Jesus in Matthew 24:36, and also in Acts 1 verse 7. So when, when I refer here to the time of his coming, I'm not referring to the second coming of Jesus. I'm referring to his first coming. And you see Luke give us the precise and exact time of the first coming, at least the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry here. Uh, Luke is very precise and very meticulous as an, uh, a historian and he's a very thorough historian we learned from chapter 1 verse 1 to 4 and what Luke has written here is inspired by the Holy Spirit and we know that from 1 Timothy 5 verse 18 where Paul quotes the scripture says then he quotes a passage from Deuteronomy and then one from Luke uh, so he calls Luke's writings scripture. So Luke is very accurate when he speaks of the time of Jesus' first coming. In verse 1 and 2, he tells us that the, the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus started in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, and that was around in the year 26 AD. And we know this because Tiberius, although he only officially started reigning and ruling as emperor in the year 14 AD, he did start reigning as almost a co-ruler, a co-regent with his father, Caesar Augustus, in the year 11 AD. So that would take you, 11 plus 15 gives you 26 AD, and that would mean Jesus was about 30 years old, uh, if we remember that he was born between the years 6 and 4 BC. And this is exactly right. Verse 23 says Jesus was about 30 years old when his ministry began. Now, under Tiberius Caesar, there were many other governors and rulers and kings who ruled over different um, parts of the Roman Empire, over different countries, and over different provinces of the Roman Empire, because the Caesar couldn't do it all alone. So he had these other people represent, represent him. 
So you had Pontius Pilate, for instance, in verse 1, and he was the governor of Judah. That's in the south, southern uh, province of Israel. Now, according to the New Testament, and also, also according to history, Pontius Pilate, uh, he was like a seesaw, up and down. And you see this when Jesus was crucified. How he just couldn't make up his mind. Jesus is not guilty, but in the end he has him crucified. He had him crucified. And then he was also very, very cruel, according to history recorded by Josephus and Philo of Alexandria, and also uh, according to the New Testament. For instance, in Luke 13, verse 1, where he, he mingled the the blood of some Galileans, some Israelites, he mingled their blood with the sacrifices. And then Luke continues and he gives some other names here, uh, names of some tetrarchs. Now, a tetrarch, that's when um, an area, a country, a province, uh, so you've got the country divided in four parts, and then one ruler rules over each part. And so that's a tetrarch. Uh, where you split it into four. And so the first one mentioned is Herod Antipas in verse 1. Herod. Uh, Herod Antipas, there were different Herods in the New Testament. Herod Antipas, he ruled over Galilee, that's the northern part of Israel, northern province of Israel. And he was the son of Herod the Great by a Samaritan woman called Malface or Malfasi, however you pronounce that. And Herod, this Herod uh, in particular, was sexually immoral. We'll see that later on, in, well, in verse 18 to 20. Well, we'll look at that next week. He was sexually immoral, uh, committed incest. He was very evil. He, was, he had a lust for blood, for murder. Uh, and you'll see later on in the New Testament that he was involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. and. He put John in prison. He had John beheaded in prison. Uh, he was superstitious, wanting to see Jesus all the time, thinking John the Baptist had risen from the dead. And so he wanted to see miracles. And he was a fox. Jesus calls him a fox in Luke 13. And he had a very bad influence on others. Mark 8 verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of the leaven or of the yeast of Herod. And then his brother Philip, according to verse 1, he was the tetrarch, the ruler of Iteria and Trichonitis, or Trichonitis, uh, that's in Syria, northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And according to history, he was one of the better characters when it comes to the Herods. He was also one of the Herods, one of the, the better ones. And then Lysanias, he ruled over Abilene, uh, that's just north of Damascus in Syria. Now, he had a, an ancestor also called the Sarnias, who also ruled over Abilene, but he died in the year 36 BC under Mark Antony and Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt, queen of the Nile. And Lysanias, this Lysanias in verse 1, is one of his descendants. And then we have Annas and Caiaphas. They were high priests, says verse 2. Now, actually, Annas was high priest and he was... Um, removed as high priest by a Roman official called Valerius Gratus. And he said, you can no longer be high priest, so he removed him. But the Jews had such respect for Annas that they still acknowledged him as the, as the high priest, although Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was now a high priest officially. And we find this 
For instance, in Matthew, where Jesus at his trial goes before Caiaphas, the son-in-law, but according to John, he first goes before Annas, the high priest, in John 18. And then Annas is also called, called the high priest in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 6. So it's during this time, now that was a mouthful, but now we get to this, it's during this time, verse 2, that John the Baptist, God, the word of God comes to John in the desert, John the son of Zechariah, and he's the very last of the Old Testament prophets. Luke 16, verse 16. Although we read of him only in the New Testament, he's the last Old Testament prophet. Jesus said so. And he's the one who announces the coming of the New Testament that starts with Jesus. So what's the point? What's the whole point of verse 1 and 2, all this history? I think the point is to say that you've got all these evil rulers, all these evil people. So even in the darkest of times, when you've got evil rulers ruling the world, there is hope. Uh, J.C. Ryle said, The darkest hour of the night is often that which just precedes the day. In a moment, Christ can turn his church's midnight into the blaze of noonday. And this is exactly what happens. It's all darkness, and then suddenly the Messiah appears. So let us not lose hope and be so despondent over what is going on in the world at this moment. But let us remember, Psalm 2, that God laughs at the nations, the nations with their clever plans, all the kings and rulers thinking they can put God in a corner and they can embarrass God. And God laughs at them. God mocks them. God says, I have set my son, I have set my king on my holy hill Zion. And this is the son of God. This is Jesus Christ. And God has given all the nations to him as his inheritance and he will smash them as someone smashes a potter's vessel, a jar of clay with a rod of iron. And if they bow and they acknowledge Christ and worship him, he will forgive them and have mercy. But if they continue in their wicked ways, he will smash them. He will destroy them because his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So the evil rulers of this world, the evil nations, the evil people of this world, and all the evil forces of darkness, Satan and his cohorts, cannot win. The battle is the Lord's. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, How often have people thought that Christianity was defeated? When you look back, that means at history, you will see that people have said, this is the end. Then a revival has come. Number two, the reason for his coming. So that was the time of his, the time of his coming, number one. And now number two, the reason for his coming. Verse four to six, we find that. I remember while I was still living in Elspreet, a lady once said to me, we need more hellfire and brimstone preaching. And I would say, lady, I agree that hell is a reality. And yet, <coughs> we proclaim a Messiah who delivers sinners from hell, who saves sinners from hell. We preach Christ who redeems people from hell and not merely hell itself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that is how John preached. John did not only preach people's sin so that they would feel guilty. He also preached repentance and forgiveness of sins through the Messiah. Verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Chapter 1, verse 77. He came to give knowledge of salvation to his people. This is John that preaches this Messiah in the forgiveness of their sins. And, and to illustrate this, John baptizes people. He tells people you must be baptized as an illustration that your sins are washed away. Verse 3. So it's as if the bride is being washed and cleanses, cleansed and uh, she takes a bath being washed and being cleaned to be ready for the coming of the bridegroom. And some of, some of you who hear me and listen to me preaching, you're not a pure bride for the bridegroom. You call yourself a Christian but your wedding dress isn't spotless. Your wedding dress isn't white. Your wedding dress is all smudged and smeared with the mud of sin. And you need to turn to the Lord. You need to repent so that he can forgive you. Verse 3. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A message of repentance and forgiveness, Luke 24, 47. You need to confess your sins that you can be forgiven, 1 John 1, verse 9. And if you do not know how to repent, if you do not know how to be forgiven, then ask the Lord that he would grant you repentance. Acts 5, 31. God granted repentance to Israel. 11.18, God granted repentance to the Gentiles. 2 Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And then if you've repented of your sin, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized so that you can illustrate the Lord has washed you clean. The Lord has washed you from your sin. Although baptism doesn't wash you, it is an illustration that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. Acts 2.22 verse 16. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins while you call on the name of the Lord. And yet we do not focus on baptism. As Christian preachers and Christians, we focus on the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17, Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so we say with John the Baptist, Prepare to meet your God. And that's the message of verse 4 to 6. That's quoted from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 to 5. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that's also taken from Malachi where we see the messenger proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, the picture in these verses is one of 
of ancient times where the king is on his way and a messenger goes ahead of the king and he clears the highway of logs and rocks and stones and branches and thorns and if there are potholes he fills them up so that the king can have a level highway. So the hindrances need to be removed if the king is on his way. What are the hindrances between you and the Lord? What are the things you need to remove from the highway of life in order to be ready for the coming, coming of your king? king the, the, the crooked ways. Are there crooked ways? As we read in verse 5. Make straight the crooked ways. Or Acts 2 verse 40. Save yourself from this crooked generation. What are the crooked things in your life that need to be made straight? What are the things that even as I'm preaching, the Holy Spirit is laying a finger on those things? Those things in your life are crooked. They are not straight. Well, lay them at the Lord's feet and repent and ask forgiveness. And then God will reveal His glory to you. He will reveal His salvation to you in Christ. Verse 6. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Or Isaiah says, shall see the glory of God. And we know that is in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. And if you see this glory, you will want more. And, and sin will no longer be attractive to you. Because you've seen the glory of God. You've tasted the salvation of God. You will want to be with Christ. You will want to see His salvation. You will want to experience it to the full. And you will wonder, how did I ever think heaven could become boring? And you will long to be with all nations, to see the glory of God. Verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You would desire and long and plead and yearn to see it when you see the face of the Lord Jesus in heaven. That's what Jesus prayed. I pray that those you've given me might be with me to see my glory. Number three, the preparation for his coming. That's verse 7 to 14. Now, someone defined the goal of preaching as follows. Uh, when we preach, we are to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. Now, that is not the main goal of preaching or the only goal of preaching, but it's, but it's biblical. It's biblical to disturb the comfortable, Amos 6 verse 1, and to comfort the disturbed, Matthew 12 verse 20. And what John the Baptist did in his preaching is both. John did both. John first disturbed the comfortable, and then he comfort, comforted the disturbed. And John did not fear men. He wasn't afraid. He spoke straight, and he rebuked the people as they came from all over Judea, the southern province and the, the capital city, Jerusalem, according to Matthew 3. And they came to be baptized, verse 7 said. And John calls them, you brood of vipers, meaning you children of the snake, you children of Satan. Because, they, because Satan is the serpent in Genesis 3. And so John calls them, you children of Satan. Jesus did the same in Matthew 12, 34 and 23, 33. He calls them a brood of vipers. And he even goes so far as to call them children of the devil in John 8, verse 44. And it's as if John is saying, where did you hear? Where did you hear? Who told you? You can escape from the wrath of God by simply being baptized without repentance? 
Verse 8. Or verse 7 at the end. Who want you to flee from the wrath to come? You think you can escape God's wrath by merely being baptized? Not repenting of your sin? And what does it help? You've got the sign of repentance, baptism. The sign of repentance and forgiveness. But you don't have repentance and forgiveness. So why do you want to be baptized? If you were living in sin. And I ask you the same. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, verse 8. And actually plural, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Acts 26.20 tells us the same, or the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. That's what you should see in your life, and then we will baptize you. Because then, and then only, you can have a clear conscience knowing you've repented of your sin, you've confessed your sin, and God has forgiven you. Now perhaps someone might say, well... I have believing parents, so I do not need to repent before I get baptized. That's our tradition. That's our theology. We baptize babies all the time. They don't need to repent as long as their parents are believers. Well, that's exactly what the Jews thought. They thought, well, we are right with God. Why? Because Abraham is our ancestor. We are children of Abraham, verse 8, and John 8, verse 39. We have Abraham as father. But, but John is telling them, Without repentance, your connection to Abraham means nothing. That's the point of verse 8. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. If God wants to, verse 8, if God wants to, he can turn these stones into children of Abraham. Just like he can if he wanted to turn st uh, stones into bread, or the, he can make the rocks call out and praise him according to Luke 19. And the same year, he can turn the stones into children of Abraham. In other words, he can take the Gentiles and they have no physical connection to Abraham. He can remove their hearts of stone. He can give them new hearts and he can turn them into children of Abraham as Galatians 3 tells us. What about you? Are you a child of Abraham? Or are you relying on your parents' faith? Please remember, God does not have grandchildren. So you cannot go on your parents' back and they piggyback you to heaven. Your parents can show you the way to heaven. But they cannot repent for you. You must repent as a personal matter between you and the Lord. You must repent. Repent and believe the gospel Jesus preached. And unless you repent... It does not help that you get baptized. Even if your parents do it, and even if your parents were sincere when they took you to be baptized as a baby. Baptism without repentance means nothing. Verse 7 and 8. Who want you to flee from the wrath to come? Who told you you can be baptized without repentance is the point. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And that's not only the baptism of John, but Christian baptism. Acts 2 verse 38. What must we do? They said in verse 37, and Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We do not believe that baptism saves. It pictures salvation. 
But there is no forgiveness of sins without repentance, and therefore there should not and cannot and must not be baptism without repentance. But I am religious, someone says. I've got a degree in theology. I was an elder for many years. Your religion means nothing. Especially if it cannot even help you to see you cannot go to heaven because of your religion or your degree in theology or your office as an elder. In that case, you are lost and a child of Satan. So your covenant theology means nothing. Especially if you are self-righteous like the Pharisees. So repent, turn to the Lord, be forgiven. Or else the Lord will cast you and your theological degree in hell. And that was John's message. Verse 7 said, he said to the crowds. Now those exact words he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 3 verse 7 to 10. And in South Africa, God is standing with his axe in his hand as he did in AD 70 when he destroyed the Jerusalem temple and he destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And throughout history, God has chopped down nations like grand and great trees. He has chopped down nations, those nations that have exalted themselves above his word, those that have become proud, Isaiah 10, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel, verse 24, Ezekiel 31, first half of the chapter, Daniel 4, Luke 13, verse 69. He chops down, he chops down the great, the proud and will he not do the same with South Africa? Will God not chop at the sick roots of our society and of the church in South Africa, many churches in South Africa, and of our personal lives? Will he not chop at the roots if we do bear bad fruit? Bad fruit caused by a rotten morality and rotten morality because... We prefer the world's wisdom above God's. You better believe he will. And if you do not repent of your sin, he will cast you in the fire of hell. Verse 9. That tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 7, 19, the same. John 15, verse 2 and verse 6, the same. Am I hurting your feelings? Well, it doesn't help you pity yourself. You must repent. You must turn to the Lord because the axe is already lying against the root of the tree. Verse 9. So call out with these crowds in verse 10, called out, What must I do? What must we do? Verse 12, What must we do? Verse 14, What must we do? Acts 2, verse 37, What must I do to be saved? Acts 16, verse 30. And John's answer to the question is not merely that you must repent in general, you must repent specifically. 
Repent specifically of those sins that you are cherishing in your life, that you are hiding in your heart, those sins on which the Holy Spirit is shining the light of His Word and He's laying His finger on those sins, as you see in verse 11 to 14, where John becomes very specific about repentance. Now for the crowds, it was, stop being materialistic. Stop chasing stuff. Stop just acquiring more and more possessions for yourself and share with the poor, verse 11. And you find this theme throughout Luke and many other passages in Scripture. And when he speaks to the tax collectors, he says, stop asking for more money than you ought to. Then the government authorizes, the government tells you this is what people should pay and you just load it, man. You just line your pockets with silver and gold. You just... Get more money from the people. You collect more. So you enrich yourselves. That's what Zacchaeus did before he got saved. And when he speaks to the soldiers, probably the soldiers of Herod, when he speaks to them, he tells them, stop bullying people. Stop threatening people. Stop accusing people falsely because you want more money for yourselves. Be content with your salary. Now, let me ask you, should you repent of the same things? Are you someone like that? You, you're just acquiring more and more stuff. There's not even place enough in your house anymore for all the stuff. You have to store things in a garage or in some outside room. What about sharing with the poor? Is that part of your budget? Does it even reach your budget to give something to especially poor believers, but maybe the poor in general? Are you like the tax collectors? You cheat people. You cheat people and you put the money in your own pocket. Or maybe you work for the government like the soldiers and you abuse your position to bully people. You abuse your position to threaten and to extort money at the border or extort money as a policeman or a cop. You extort money. You threaten people. You accuse them falsely so you can get more money. And you're complaining and moaning and groaning continually complaining about your salary. In other words, you are just as greedy as the bosses for whom you work. Yes, you want to strike so you can have more money, but you are just as greedy as they are. Or perhaps you, you don't do those sins, but, but you, you have other sins. You have other sins in the hidden corners of your heart. There are other sins in your life you're hiding. Now, I've been in the ministry long enough. Been in the ministry long enough to know that you cannot hide these things from the Lord. Sometime or, or other, the Lord's going to bring them out. But if you repent of these sins, then the Lord will forgive you. doesn't matter how evil your heart is, how corrupt, how rotten your heart is, how great your sin is. If you confess your sin, you will find mercy. You will find forgiveness. If the Lord could, could save corrupt tax collectors, and he did many times. In the Gospel of Luke, there are a number of occasions where he saves tax collectors. Luke 7, verse 29, 18, verse 13 and 14. Luke 19, the famous story of Zacchaeus. Matthew 21. Tax collectors going to heaven before the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 10 verse 3. Matthew was a Pharisee or a tax collector. And then verse 12, you see tax collectors. 
So the Lord can save, if he can save corrupt tax collectors, if he can save bloodthirsty people like the Apostle Paul before he got saved, then God can do the same for you. So simply acknowledge that you've sinned against him and that you need Jesus. And then you will be ready to meet him. Then you will be prepared to meet your God. You will be prepared to meet the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. You will be like my sister. My sister was very afraid of death before her conversion. And one evening she watched the movie The Pilgrim's Progress. And in the movie, this woman has a dream that Jesus returns and she's not ready and she, she's left behind. Actually, in John Bunyan's books, it's a man. This man has a dream and he's terrified when he, when he wakes up from the dream, especially because as Jesus was on the clouds, his eyes pierced into the soul of this man. He gazed at this man and the man was terrified. And all his sins came back to him and his conscience smote him. It lashed him. It whipped him. And my, my sister was so moved by this. The next day she went to talk to a pastor and he shared the gospel with her and she got saved. Or another story that just happened very recently. Uh, a 19-year-old girl in the Northern Cape. She's been listening to our sermons online and she, she had dreams of the second coming also since she was eight years old. And she was very afraid, terrified. And always these dreams, I'm not ready and I'm not going, I'm, I won't be going with the redeemed. And she was afraid. And last year it became very bad and very intense. And she pleaded with God to save her. And she understood the gospel, but there was no answer. She called on the Lord and called on the Lord she wrote me an email and I wrote her back trying to give her answers from Scripture, but it didn't help. And so it went back and forth about three times until in, toward the end of last year there was a thunderstorm in the town she lives and she was terrified, thunder and lightning, and afraid. Jesus is coming and I am not ready. I am not prepared to meet my God. And she pleaded with God to save her again, but no answer. Until the very last day of 2020, 31 December, she heard thunder rumbling in the distance and knew she's not ready. And she pleaded, Lord, please, please, even if it's for one soul, please, would you not save me? Do not come and leave me unsaved. Have mercy. And she went to her room and prayed, wept before the Lord, and then went and talked to her father. And her father pointed her to John 6 verse 37. He who comes to me I will never cast out. And she believed. She realized there and then that she'd been relying on her faith and not on Christ by faith. She was trusting in herself, thinking, do I have enough faith? And not looking away from herself by faith to Jesus. And she looked to Christ. And she was saved. And now her and my sister both, they are ready. They are prepared to meet their God. How about you? Are you ready to look into the eyes of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ?
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I do pray, uh, pray that you would use this sermon and open the eyes and hearts of hearers on SoundCloud or on YouTube that they would hear the message, they would listen and be saved and be prepared to meet their God. Amen.